Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we talk about life underneath the seafloor and life on tree leaves and how to protect our plants. Now life can survive in microbial form in really strange ways, including deep underneath the seafloor in places it really shouldn't be found. Plus, how life on leaves of trees can change depending on the region and its neighbourhood, and how we can keep the leaves of trees safe from bacterial infection. Now we've talked about life here many times on this podcast, whether that be on earth, in the air, in our forests, in our oceans. And today we're going to talk about life beneath the sea, but not in the sea itself, beneath the beneath the sea. In the seafloor, and not just in the sand on the top, we're talking really deep down in a sedimentary layer. Now, a huge team of researchers collaborating from the Japan Agency for Marine Earth Science and Technology, Germany's Madrum Centre for Marine and Environmental Sciences at the University of Bremen, the University of Rhode Island researchers, and other institutes like the University of Hyogo and the University of Kochi. Now, they have been taking samples, core samples, from around 40 different sites across the world. And in these samples, they have discovered tens of thousands of new forms of life. And these core samples are drilled from deep sea locations. One paper published in the journal Science, which included a huge team of researchers. Lead authors on this paper include Verena Hua, Fumio Inagaki, Yuki Morono. But the list is long of collaborators on such a multidisciplinary, multinational project. Now, One of the fascinating things is in this paper, they focused on an area of the coast of Japan, a deep sea trough, the Nakai Trough. And there they took their research vessel, the Chinkyu, and drilled a hole 1,180 meters deep. Now why they did this is they wanted to take samples of the soil, a core sample, from deep in an ocean trench. Now why would you want to study a core sample? Well, you actually learned some pretty interesting things. They were trying to reach the sediment, and that sediment itself is actually pretty boiling hot. Because this area is actually close, if you know anything about geography, you'll understand the, perhaps the Pacific Ring of Fire, the boundaries of the tectonic plates, where there's a large amount of volcanoes and tectonic activity, earthquakes, you name it. This borders, of course, coast of Japan, runs all the way down through past New Zealand, and then around and up the other side, notably places like the San Andreas Fault in the United States. But this large trench region as well, in particular the trench they were studying, the Nankai Trough, is a pretty interesting one, because the sediment there is at around 120 degrees Celsius. That's really hot. You know, water boils at 100 degrees. So this soil, it's above the boiling temperature of water. And okay, that's cool. I mean, I guess you found some interesting soil that's really, really hot. But why they were studying this is they're trying to study the life that can be found at the bottom of the ocean, including the bottom of the deep sea trenches. Because it's such a high temperature that that enables life to thrive and survive in places that other species just couldn't cope with. Now, we're talking about 120 degrees, so if you found some life there, that life could, you know, survive in boiling water. That's pretty remarkable to think about, considering that we can't do that. Now, what they found was some species of microbes and organisms that were able to live in this incredibly hot sediment. 
Now, keep in mind that the deep sea ocean is not a really friendly place to live, aside from the fact that it can be incredibly dark there, and a lot of creatures need some form of light as part of their food chain at least to help, for example, grow plankton or bacteria or algae that they can feed on that feeds up the food chain. Without light, well, there's not a lot of heat there and there's not a lot of power for life, or at least the generation of food sources. Another issue is, of course, temperature and pressure. Pressure is obviously increasing quite rapidly the deeper and deeper you go down. And also, because there's less temperature there, the energy supply becomes increasingly scarce. So the problem is, if you're a creature down there, what are you eating to survive? You need to have an energy source, and in that food chain, there's not many energy sources around. Now, we've only known for about 30 years that despite all these seeming barriers to life, there's actually a lot of microorganisms that inhabit the seabeds at depths of several kilometres. What enables this life to thrive or survive, and how it manages to do so, is really not well understood. And in particular, if life is surviving around these hot volcanic vents or heated areas of the ocean floor, how is it managing to survive in such extreme conditions and in such amazing pressure? Now, that's why this research has been undertaking deep sea drilling, because the only way we can get down there to really study and take samples most efficiently is really to drill. Now, not everywhere across the planet has deep sea sediment that's pretty warm. In fact, most places are under 30 degrees Celsius, but the deeper you go down, in terms of drilling anyway, you actually start getting closer and closer to some warm and heated soils, heated by tectonic activity or geothermal activity. And that's exactly what the researchers had modelled. So with that in mind, the research team developed the T-Limit expedition, drill a thousand metre deep hole into sediment that would be up to 120 degrees. And they managed to do that. Now what they found in these core samples is that the microbe population density sort of collapsed at a temperature range of about 45 degrees. So as soon as they got below 45 degrees, there was no microbes to be found. But you know, when you got up to the high temperature areas of the ocean floor, life seemed to spontaneously thrive in this hot zone. And not just hot as in, you know, a comfortable temperature. I would have thought 30 to 45 degrees would have been a comfortable temperature. But for the microbes, they could go 120 degrees and more. They seem to like deeper and even hotter zones. They were to detect cells and microbial activity deeper and deeper, up to this temperature of 120 degrees. And they found chemical evidence of the organism's use of the organic material in the sediment that actually is what enables them to survive. And that helps us understand how these creatures, microbes though they are, survive in such deep pressure, deep underground, at the bottom of the ocean, in hot, hot temperatures, managed to survive. And this is what's so amazing about this. The amount that we've explored or studied or funded research missions to look at the solar system or the areas in space compared to how much we've managed to explore our ocean depths. Well, we've more gone to the moon and studied that than we've looked at the deep sea ocean, percentage-wise, that is. And that's stunning to think about. And this is an example of how life is there in strange, strange places at the bottom of the ocean. Now, what that might mean for life on Earth is one thing. It shows that life, microbial otherwise, can survive in some really strange locations, despite seemingly impossible conditions. And that means that life across the universe could also thrive in these strange locations of high pressure, high heat, not much light. And that gives us hope 
but also tells us where to look, potentially, not just here on Earth in the deep sea trenches, if you want to find life, but across the universe as well. Now, this paper was published in the journal Science, Temperature Limits to Deep Sea Subfloor Life in the Nankai Trough, and it had a large team of international collaborators working from four universities and research institutions. in the deep sea to life on the leaves of a tree now we know that we have our own microbiomes and our microbiomes can act as a signature for ourselves we talked about that a few times here on this podcast but a new paper published in the journal ecological monographs by Geneviève Lavoie Stephen Kemble from the University du Quebec à Montreal have spent a summertime investigating bacteria covering the leaves of the most Canadian of trees the maples and what they've been analysing is the leaf microbiomes from the sugar maple trees from different locations and different species. And what they've found is a surprising amount of variation amongst the trees and the microbes that live on them. Now, they took samples of the sugar maple tree from all over Canada and the northeastern United States, Quebec, Ontario, and some of the states from the New England area. And what they looked at was the iconic sugar maples microbes that lived on its leaves. Now, to get these leaf samples back to the lab without damaging the microbes on them involved a lot of hiking to remote locations and something to how to rush back to the lab, hence sort of the research area that they looked at. And the species of the sugar maple is actually found quite abundant in the southern end of the study range, but the further north you go, they sort of start to taper off because conifers are, of course, more common in those regions. The northern tip of the Stunner Range at sites like Montsvalin National Park, sugar maples are very rare. So actually even to find one is quite a tricky challenge indeed. This is because it's the transition from the mixed deciduous forests of the St. Lawrence Valley to the boreal landscape dominated by conifers further north. Now, so that means you find some maple trees that are seemingly out of place for the biome that they're in. But nevertheless, that's the perfect thing for this study. Because despite being outliers in a conifer-dominated land, these northernmost sugar maple trees have adopted a leaf microbiome that actually blends in with that of their coniferous neighbours. Now, what she found in this study was a pattern along the latitudinal gradient of the study area basically from north to south. Southern sugar maples were surrounded by lots of other sugar maples, right, which made sense because they're more common in that region. But they tended to have a relatively similar microbiome, one that was distinct from other trees in the area, but one that was common amongst the other sugar maples. The further north you get, though, the sugar maple trees start to blend in. They try to blend in with these northern conifers that surround them. So in these areas, the maple trees hosted bacterial communities that are actually more like the microbiomes of the other dominant species in that region. Now, this is a common pattern that's been observed not just in trees, but also amongst animal microbiomes. Ground-dwelling animals, for instance, tend to have relatively similar microbiomes, possibly because, you know, they're coming into contact with each other 
or the traces of each other. While canopy dwelling animals tend to have gut microbiomes that are more diverse from each other. And this is really fascinating because this idea of understanding not only the way a microbiome influences and is different between different species, but also varies amongst the same species, is quite fascinating. Because it shows how much influence the microbes can have on the plant's health and life. By blending in with the regional microbiome, these maple leaves in the north have a better chance of surviving in that area. And the more familiar pattern of microbiome in the south, where the maple is more dominant, well, they don't need so desperately to try and blend in to survive because they're not at the edge of their habitable range. So it shows the intricacies and the connections in this plant and microbe relationship. And it really depends on how well that tree manages to fit in with the crowd. Some great research published in the journal Ecological Monographs, lead author Genevieve Lois and Stephen Campbell. Now we've talked about microbial life on leaves and plants. But another thing to remember is that plants can get bacterial infections, just as humans do. And the thing is, when a tree or a plant or maybe a crop gets infected, well, they get sick. And if it's a food crop, well, then you can get a loss in yield or quality. Now, that is no good for people, no good for farmers, and no good for the plants themselves. So researchers have recently published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry, a unique way of trying to cut down on this bacteria leading to infections in rice, kiwi and citrus and how these plants manages to survive and save off infection from these sources. Researchers on this paper were a large team but lead authors were Hong Wu Li and Tan Ji. Now there's not currently a good treatment for some of these plant bacterial diseases. Things like rice leaf blight, kiwi fruit canker, citrus canker. And the losses that these cause on plants and crops across the globe annually is quite substantial. So scientists are always trying to find ways to help treat this and prevent it from taking hold on the plant. Now, a type of plant compound, tetrahydrobicarboline, THC, alkaloids, are known to have a kind of anti-tumor, anti-inflammatory, antifungal, antioxidant, antiviral type behavior. So this kind of plant compound could be, or at least that's what the researchers Pei Ying Wang, Song Yang and their colleagues wondered, could be possibly a way to fight back against plant bacterial diseases. So they used a THC alkaloid called elanginine, which is produced by taking Russian olive trees and a couple of the plants as a scaffold, using them to grow the material and then crush it down and produce this oil. Now, to this framework, they added a couple of different groups to make some new compounds. So they took this scaffold base of elginine from this Russian olive oil trees, and then they added in some new chemical groups to make a new overall compound. And out of all of the strains that they made of this weird blend of plant compounds, they are able to produce two, which actually really efficiently killed three strains of plant pathogenic bacteria in liquid cultures. This 
three different types of plant bacteria. Plant bacteria affecting kiwi fruit, rice, and citrus, like we spoke about. So with this seeing it worked in liquid culture, they took it to actually test on real rice, kiwi, and citrus plants. And they found that when it was applied to the twigs and to the leaves, they could not only prevent infection, but also treat bacterial infection. That is pretty amazing. You've got to now got a compound you can apply a naturally occurring compound not some harsh chemical based method but a naturally occurring plant based compound that you could apply to these fruits and to these plants to help keep them safe prevent them from getting infected but also to treat them if an infection does take hold these researchers may have managed to determine that what was actually causing these compounds to actually help fight back against bacteria was they worked by increasing the levels of reactive oxygen species in the bacteria Basically, they pumped up the amount of reactive oxygen in the bacteria, which causes those bacterial cells to basically die off. Remembering that whilst we can breathe oxygen just fine, oxygen in many other contexts can be actually quite deadly. So by pumping up the oxygen production in this bacteria, it effectively kills them off. That's a pretty unique way to make a way of getting rid of bacteria that for us actually doesn't make anything harmful. Extra oxygen, okay, that's fine for us. And it's an innovative approach that took compounds from naturally occurring plants and applied them together to actually make a new way of protecting our crops and keeping our plants and fruit safe for consumption. This paper was published in the Journal of Agricultural Food Chemistry. This has been the Young Scientist of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Microbial life at the bottom of the ocean, deep underground, plus life on leaves of trees and how it differs from their neighbours and keeping bacterial life off plants' leaves and protecting them special compounds. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.